Um, well, today, me and Regan have a very special guest. Um, I can't, I don't want to pronounce your name correctly, Martin. Oh, is it, it's Martin, right? Martin Namo. Yes, Martin. Uh, he is a uh, independent uh, blogger from Papua New Guinea, um, the nation just on top of Australia. Uh, but Australia has, uh, I don't know, very mixed relations with. I'll, I'll be honest, like, I'm not, I'm very ignorant about um, Papua New Guinea, despite you guys being probably our closest neighbors, if you actually think about it. Um, what about you, Regan? Um, I, I have a friend who was an expat there for a while. Um, I've like a, I've read a few books about, um, the language or the, the language density and stuff, but yeah, lots of Papua New Guineans live in Queensland. So I know more, more about, uh, immigrants here. So yeah, I'm really, really excited to have you on Martin and it's going to be great to, um, mm. hear your perspective on things. Well, it's, it's really great to have uh, people like you are willing to reach out to this part of the world, which is uh, at its closest point, only two kilometers from Australian soil, which is from the oh, really? mainland of Papua New Guinea. Yeah, from mainland of Papua New Guinea to the I Australian island of Saibai, Torres Strait Island of Saibai. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. At, at low, t- low tide, you could almost walk from PNG to Australian soil. <laughs> Yeah, like it's weird because we learn a lot about America uh, in Australia when we were kids. I learned about American history, Civil War and all that. Um, I'm guessing it just shows how America focused we are. Well, we don't know. Like all we know is that Port Moresby, I think that's the capital city. Is it? Uh, I don't know. Yes. And that, that's about it. That's, and the Kokoda track. That's it. Those two things. And it shows that we're so American focused, so European focused. We don't really care about the neighbors unless it's like New Zealand in some because they have white people. Um, where are you based in Papua New Guinea, Martin? Well, I'm I'm based here at the nation's capital, Port Moresby. And and just listening to you both, you know, at least you're honest about uh, your uh, knowledge and relationship with uh, PNG, unlike some other people who try to claim to be experts of PNG and try to <laughs> analyze things here. So I really appreciate your honesty as well. Oh, no problem. Um, uh, you know, honesty is very important in the, today's world where there's of fake news. Um, I mean, there, there was that when you posted out that um, you were coming onto a pod and there was a person that did reply called Albert Schramm. Um, so he talked very vaguely about some kind of um, Chinese, you know, restricting the economy of PNG universities. Do you, do you know much about this Albert Schramm person? So Albert was the uh, former chancellor of uh, Papua New Guinea's only technology university, the one that trains engineers. Uh, it's the University of Technology up in the north of the country. And uh, he had some issues with uh, the fellow colleagues at the university and uh, also uh, some, some issues with the uh, law and uh, he had to leave the country. Uh, but his comments relate to what has been over the past 20 years increasing encroachment of government into the uh, running of universities, which are supposed to be autonomous uh, institutions. Okay. Um, do you think they ring true anyway? Because Chinese investment and... Well, yeah, I think the reference to China is just... Uh, 
about the governance model as opposed to China per se interfering with Papua New Guinea University is probably referring to uh, the the state interference in the university, which uh, he has uh, sort of uh, compared with the Chinese system of government, I guess. <clears throat> okay. And yeah, and you, you really kind of enlightened uh, me as well, especially me, like about how privileged we are in Australia that we don't really have to worry about um, data costs when recording a podcast. Um, I don't know if you mind me saying just that you, you were talking about how, um, you know, the, the, the costs are quite high um, when we're talking about yeah. using audio only. And it, it's just, you know, it's very slamming reality because you guys, you know, you're two, two kilometers away from us and surely that, that isn't fair. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, you, you could easily put up a microwave antenna on the Australian island of Saiba and send, you know, <laughs> send the signal this way to the Papua New Guinea side and have a international gateway there, sort of to provide rural internet services. That's, you know, something that... How much does internet cost? Have, <laughs> like, like megabyte or uh, gig? How does it do it? Well, at the, at, currently the, the cost is uh, about uh, 4 to $5 per gigabyte. Uh, Australian and uh, US, US. USD. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Uh, well, look, mate, so, um, I'm happy to send some money to your PayPal if you need it later. Okay. So I feel really bad now. <laughs> yeah. So, so, and then that's when you buy the bundle. And then after, you know, who, who monitors their internet on the phone and all that. So, yeah. After you run out, if you have some credits like that you bought with the own company, then they get eaten up too, and you lose a lot of money in that process. So we're always like checking our balance every now and then, so we don't lose money. What about home internet? Like you know, the connect cable connected internet, like the landline stuff. Yeah. So, so prior to mobile internet, Papua New Guinea had very low telephone uh, penetration. Uh, so very very few households actually have a, you know, copper wire coming to the house. <clears throat> Even even in the nation's capital as well. Uh, really? So, wow. Yes, like really. <laughs> so the population is mainly de- dependent on uh, mobile uh, internet. I mean, I at, at 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 my place here, we don't have copper wire or fiber optics coming, and uh, we use mobile internet. Because I I remember as a kid when I was learning about World War Two that copper mines are quite common in the Pacific area. So, and, the, and Australians have made a lot of money from copper mining. So okay. surely copper lines would be something that, that would be abundant. So I'm very surprised, I'll be honest. It, 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 there's an interesting history about this because the, the uh, cop, first copper mine in PNG was uh, uh, approved by the uh, colonial administration. And uh, it's the uh, Panguna mine in Bougainville and that's the mine that led to the civil war and the uh, uh, conflict that uh, resulted in about ten to 15,000 people dying in Bougainville. Um, but at the time when that copper mine came into uh, production, uh, the, the Vietnam War was happening. So, you know, the copper went there to produce bullets. And so that, in a funny kind of way, that's where copper went to make bullets, not to... Phone lines or, uh, or dashing replies. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, wow, that's horrible. Uh, colonialism, yeah. 
So I've always sort of wondered if um, the Australian sort of colonial administration and even after the 19, 1975 independence that that uh, the lack of development in Papua New Guinea was um, was on purpose. How, how, do, how do you feel about development of, of Papua New Guinea in regards to the Australian relationship? We, there's a joke we have that... Uh, <clears throat> You know, after the war, the powers were sitting down and discussing what to do, and uh, they were wondering what to do with PNG, and they said, oh, give it to the Australians. What are they going to teach them? How to drink beer? <laughs> and that's pretty much uh, oh, God. the PNG story. <laughs> um, I, I don't think the Australians themselves were prepared uh, to govern an overseas territory and, and prepare it for independence. And they they began that process of in preparing for independence very late in the in the late uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, up to the uh, independence in 1975. So, at independence, for instance, we did not have a you know an educated workforce in in terms of you know people who can run the country and and. Uh, and deliver the kind of development agenda that was needed for the country. Uh, and so those legacy issues, if you like, if you have that unskilled uh, workforce, that public service that uh, lacks capacity, it, it sort of uh, builds on to the next generation of workers mm. and all that. So we, we really have a problem with implementation. This country, we have great laws, great policies, but when it comes to implementation, we fail. So there's really uh, no that, expertise. Um, that's the problem because they just left you kind of um, empty, just left. Yeah, so, so there weren't a lot of university graduates at the time of independence. Probably, you know, less than 100 people at university education when PNG got independence. Mm. So how are you going to run a country with that kind of uh, unskilled workforce? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it's just very crazy that, because um, every time I hear about any, not just Papua New Guinea, any Pacific Island country that China's looking to invest in for schools, um, for, say, like internet, let's talk about internet, which, you know, um, like, I think it was two years ago, Huawei, was it? Or, or one of the Chinese companies offered to invest and set up, you know, fiber cables, Papua New Guinea. And I know Australia stepped in and said, no, you can't do that. Uh, can you talk a bit more about that? Yes, yeah, so uh, this this part of the uh, the broader geopolitical war that Trump was having, and uh, you know, Trump accused the Huawei uh, team of uh, being tools of the Communist Party and uh, you know having technology that could spy on uh, other countries, and that was pretty much the uh, concern that was raised by the Australian side, and they. They did not want uh, Huawei building a cable from uh, PNG down into Australia uh, for national Australian national security reasons. Uh, wow. What was then proposed by the Australians was uh, what is referred to as the Coral Sea Cable, which connects both uh, PNG and the Solomon Islands. Uh, so that cable has already connected, been connected from Sydney here to uh, 
Port Mosby and the propaganda that goes around is that well internet prices well that's from last year <clears throat> the prices were supposed to come down but as I told you even today we're paying about five US dollars for a gigabyte so how, how come like um, why is it not used or so there's really not much clarity about what's going on there's so so many things uh uh, being tossed around one of the uh, one of the uh, reasons that is being tossed around is that uh, PNG got the loan from China to build the, a national broadband network mm -hmm. and this one Huawei has built it or, and is continuing to build it and so the accusation is that whatever revenue that is being earned from the coral sea cable is uh, going towards repaying the loan to the Chinese, and that's what's keeping the price up. Yeah, but I heard China yeah. had um, cancelled or well, not cancelled repayments for the COVID period of all loans. So that's interesting. Um, so I, I, I'm I'm just surprised because it seems like there's you know there's a there's a public has become really important in recent years, and I think it, it might have benefited. Do you think it's benefited? The people, because um, I know Australia, every time China wants to invest in Papua New Guinea in any area, Australia steps in and they, they, they try to like do something. Do you think that's been, and they sort of try to raise the prices or try to increase foreign aid? Is that, do you think that's a benefit or do you think it's, it's actually just causing instability in the country? Well, obviously, it's the powers that be uh, are putting in money, they are putting it to serve their own national interest yeah. and not necessarily the interest of. But just to correct you a, a bit, it's not that Papua New Guinea has suddenly become important to Australia. Papua New Guinea has always been important to Australia. Yes. Australia had to fight in Papua New Guinea during World War II so that the Japanese wouldn't be in Sydney. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so I think the, the Australian side tends to forget uh, that and, 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 you know, it's obviously, as you both have highlighted, you know, Papua New Guinea doesn't feature prominently in, in Australian minds, in Australian media. media. Yeah. And so, you know, um, it gets lost out in, in all the other media frenzy that takes place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, my, my bad on that. Um, definitely, you know, has always been important. I mean, that's why Australia... Well, a lot of people don't even know that Australia actually um, had a colonial administration in Papua New Guinea um, after World War I. Um, you know, it, it's when the Germ Germans, um, uh, I think Germany had it before, right? And um, so, so Papua New Guinea is, is a combination of Papua and New Guinea. The island was split between the British and the Germans. So so the southern part of the country was British uh, protectorate called Papua. Mm -hmm. And and the northern part was the uh, German colony of New Guinea. <clears throat> so after Australia gained independence, Britain gave uh, the protectorate of Papua to Australia and it became the territory of uh, Australian territory of Papua. And... Uh, as you rightfully pointed out, it is from the territory of Papua that 
the Australians went up north during World War One and uh, and took uh, possession of German New Guinea. <clears throat> so after the World War, they were still administered separately. The New Guinea side was a League of Nations mandated territory given to Australia, okay. while while the the Papuan side, the southern part, was Australian te- territory, which was governed by an act of parliament, the Australian act of parliament. <clears throat> I mean, it, it's crazy that you seem to know so much about Australia, while we know so little about Papua New Guinea, and it um, makes you feel really disrespectful. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> um, it, it, is it kind of like how, I guess, Australians know a lot about America? Americans know very little about Australia, but just like me. Yeah, it's probably like that because, you know, Papua New Guinean television is dominated by Australian programs. Like what, Neighbours um, or something? Home and uh, Away. Home and away. <laughs> <laughs> Before it was McLeod's Daughters, all of that stuff. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, well. Sorry, I, I hate that stuff too. But... Uh, what about music? Yeah. Is it like the... The same stuff? Or? Oh, yeah, you know, the Delta Goodrums and guys about... Oh, wow. Really? Even that? Shannon <laughs> oh, No? Do you know Shannon No? Keith Urban, Shannon No, yes. Oh, no. Australian <laughs> pop culture, yeah. Uh, rugby league, yes, big up here. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, actually, that's one of the one I things think... I hear about Papua New Guinea about, sports. Yeah. Lots of... Yeah, I think, I think Papua New Guinea know more about rugby league players than people in Melbourne. <laughs> I see. Is that the national sport, or? Yeah, it is indeed. Yeah. Yeah, you can see how how unfair this relationship is. Like, it, it seems like, as the Australia basically took a lot of the wealth and just um, left. Um, yeah. So, sorry, yeah, go. No, I mean it's it's important to point out that the Australians actually did not get heavily involved in economic activity here. Okay. And that's part of the reason why, you know, at independence, the place was so underdeveloped. Um, the only main activity was the uh, gold fields up in the north, uh, in the Wawapololo gold fields. So it seems like China is, is moving into a, a space that has been left empty by Australia. Um, what's, what's the general the vibe among Papua New Guineans? Like, are they... Hmm. Are they excited about the prospects or are they hesitant or how are they feeling? I think most people are ambivalent, but also the Chinese uh, move. I think the West isn't learning from history. Um, Mm -hmm. After the the Asian financial crisis and going into the 2000s, Papua New Guinea was was very stagnant. And uh, the first major investment into the country um, after the uh, 2007 elections was uh, the Chinese investment in a billion dollar uh, nickel cobalt mine, the Roman nickel mine. And as soon as the Chinese put that money into the country, uh, you know, you had everyone's antennas in Washington and Canberra going up. So compete with the Chinese, you know, the US and the Australians, you know, they, they invested in 2008 in the uh, PNG LNG project. 
it's a 19 billion dollar project so after after those two competitive moments things seem to have died down and and uh, the west seem to have gone gone to sleep china on the other hand continues to uh, uh pump money in uh, a lot of the when png hosted apec here a lot of the infrastructure was built by the chinese as well <laughs> so the so the visitors from other countries who would have come to port mosby would have seen you know china aid signs as they drove past on the roads of port mosby <laughs> oh wow i mean i've never been but i hope to go one day um it sounds like a very so so i i just you know despite obama talking about the pacific pivot um the west did not really pivot here Mm-hmm. until the war started happening uh, when when the chinese money was becoming very visible i mean you know mike pence would have come and seen the china aid signs you know so all of all of this uh is is a knee jerk reaction uh to a situation where you know one would think australia and the us would traditionally be the partners papua new guinea would be dealing with yeah i mean but has has papua new guinea as the people actually seen any benefit though from the chinese investments well uh, depends on whom you talk to uh, of course, for yeah. city residents <laughs> city residents the roads yeah definitely been an improvement uh so you you could say that there's been a benefit in that sense mm-hmm. uh in terms of uh chinese money in the retail sector there's been a lot of that as well uh and then there's a debate over well are chinese taking over space the papua new guinea should be participating in the retail sector um so those are the kind of uh it depends on what sector is involved Uh, but the infrastructure benefits have definitely uh, been uh, good to in terms of uh, particularly uh, construction of roads yeah and yeah. of course there's that the white reason with um you know the the big the big interest that came out earlier was that 30 billion dollar city uh, looking to build off um off the of an on an island off the coast and um you know that that's a Daru island yeah Yeah so that that's that's near the Torres Strait uh that's that's the area that I am uh, traditionally from okay uh, not the island itself but the region um, so well that part of the world you know it's you can sit on the mainland and you see all the bright lights in the night and you are in pitch black darkness including daru town where electric supply electricity supply is just so terrible <laughs> so um the australians have been uh, blinded by their own bright lights on the other side and haven't looked out to where there's been so much darkness on the png side mm. and uh, i you know I don't know do not know where the uh, whether the city will get off the ground or not but you know to my mind I'm just seeing this as some sort of prank that Beijing is playing and the ruffling the feathers of everyone down on the other side <laughs> uh 
but having oh, said that, you know, <clears throat> the Chinese have put serious money into the country, and there's no reason why if they can uh, cough up the cash that they they would uh, do such a project up in the area. And and it's possible because uh, the Apart from Daro Island, uh, the mainland area is very dense, uh, sorry, sparsely populated. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of land that's available should people want to come and okay. invest in the area. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, so it would be positive, right? If that, if that it was to happen, that, that's a huge amount oh, of money. Oh, 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 definitely. I mean, you know, Daro Island does not have running water. Okay. does not have running electricity uh, the roads all crumbled up you know all the infrastructure is decaying it has some of the world's highest rates of multi-drug and extreme drug resistant tuberculosis <laughs> um, so such investment in the area would definitely have a positive impact on uh, people's livelihoods. I mean, that's kind of selfish for Australia then to say, you know, this shouldn't happen because you're, you're threatening Australians who, um, you know, live, live far yeah. higher quality lives on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, that's the sentiment uh, expressed by the uh, governor of the, of the province uh, who, who, who basically uh, told the Australians to back off from from the area because you know, I mean, I whilst you enjoy like, got bought out by CCP money or something, and or he's a plant. You see all these weird comments. You're like, you know, it's like as though as soon as you even say anything positive about China and Australia, you're automatically paid off as an actor. It's <laughs> it's pretty funny in that way. But yeah. Yeah. No. You know. <clears throat> Papua New Guinea's education curriculum was uh, written mainly by Australians. So I'm just thinking about myself. Had I, had I not educated myself and just gone with the curriculum, I might just be someone who just feels scared of communists and, and you know. So you do learn about like the like the Cold War and stuff. I'm guessing. Ah yeah yeah you know, <clears throat> communism is bad. Democracy is good. That kind of propaganda. <clears throat> Oh, okay. So even that stretches all the way to Papua New Guinea. Um, yeah. Uh, so you, you, so you're saying that you're from that region. Um, so do you guys have a lot of, uh, similarities to the Torres Strait Islanders in Australia? Yeah. So, so like, uh, Eddie Koikemabo, the, uh, land titles, uh, native land titles, uh, hero. Mm -hmm. He's, he's, he's from Mari Island, which is called, uh, also called Mare Island. Mm -hmm. So Mare, for instance, in my language means good. <clears throat> oh, okay. Uh, so, <laughs> and uh, so Doan Island is one of the Torres Strait Islands on the Australian side. And it, in the other language, not mine, it sort of means close and it's actually close to the PNG mainland. Um, <clears throat> I see. So, so you can see it in the naming of the islands. Uh, the, uh, the Torres Strait Islanders obviously get their cassowary feathers on from the PNG side. I mean, before the borders and everything, people went back and forth. Uh, yeah. So the cultural connections are there. Um, but somehow an imaginary line creates this 
imaginary world that uh, that has uh, major consequences on the lives of people <clears throat> and and the disparity in the standard of living yeah that's um so basically just an, a, i don't know how to draw that line but it sounds very arbitrary yeah it's um, it's not the, the australian behavior towards that part of it's it's not something new you know historically for instance uh, the queensland government stole uh, wages of you know papua new guineans who were crave divers in the torres strait <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I heard also similar stories about Chinese migrant divers as well being treated yeah, so very, very poorly. It, this is part of a long history of uh, Australian subjugation of people from that part of the world. Yeah, that's shocking. Um, look, I, I, I have very strong views on how Australians treat um, the Indigenous people here. It's just it's very shocking. And the fact now, now I learned that, you know, there's this arbitrary line that basically separates people of the same, you know, the same family, basically, in ways. And just, um, I don't even know why Australia has land that far up to the um, Papua New Guinea coast in any way, because it, it seems like it also blocks off a lot of the potential economic zones for Papua New Guinea to develop. Yeah, especially the border uh, villages, because if you see where the line comes, the international boundary, it comes almost to the shore, shoreline on the Papua New Guinea mainland. So... That basically means that uh, the coastal villages don't have access to their traditional fishing grounds. Oh, and wow. I just realized, yeah, it's actually literally... Um, so, Regan, do you have a map up? Yeah, I'm looking at the map. This, yeah. is, this is disgusting. It's yeah. actually literally pressing on their, on their fishing land. So, they don't even have... Like, it's like on a beach. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, the, so that's, that's the... Uh, and if... if if ships want to navigate, they have to go into Australian waters and then come back into Papua New Guinea waters. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I, and, and, they, and, they, and they keep talking about like equality and stuff when they treat each other. The Australian Foreign Minister of Papua New Guinea, that's just, and they have, yet they have such a border like this, which is, <laughs> I, I don't know how, it's such hypocrisy in so many ways. <laughs> yeah. Just... Yeah, so, so, especially the border communities, see, their economic activity is now restricted with the traditional grounds where they would go and get, uh, you know, resources from the sea, they can't access them. And, and that drives poverty along those communities. Yeah, that's just, that's just actually um, horrible. I, like, see, this is very lightening. I think this will actually lighten a lot of our um, listeners because I mean, we, we, like, I think we have in the back of our mind that um, Australia, you know, owned um, a large, you know, Papua New Guinea from like around, basically after World War One to the seventies. Um, but we didn't know it was to the extent to this very day. There's still a lot of you know injustice, like such as this going on, where basically robbing traditional fishing lands of these people away from them. Yeah. And one one thing we haven't we've got to mention is that Australia used uh, the Papua New Guinean island of Manus Island as a as a dumping ground for refugees mm. um, to imprison them, which I understand has caused some friction with the locals there as well. Are you familiar much with Manus Island, Martin? Or? I I haven't been up uh, to the area, but uh, I have. Uh, uh, met with uh, refugees and uh, I'm familiar with the issues surrounding 
the the island and one of the things that uh, people don't talk about is uh, what is referred to as uh, sovereignty for rent and that's a lot you know australia other other countries they, they tend to do that to to uh, uh, rent or you know use checkbook diplomacy to uh, have uh, certain access that uh, essentially undermines the sovereignty of uh, the countries yeah uh, so so in the case of uh, the manus island detention the Papua New Guinea Supreme Court actually declared it uh, illegal. Oh. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> who's allowing that to happen? It was, like... it was uncon... Well, that, that was why the detention center was closed. And, and of course, Australia did it later on for whatever internal reasons Australia had. But initially, it was the Papua New Guinea Supreme Court that declared the detention center illegal because the it did not uh, adhere to Papua New Guinea's uh, immigration laws. Okay. But but you can see this undermining of sovereignty that happened because Australia had dollars to uh, give to the government. Yeah. That's... um, That was was deliberate. And, and, you know, the fact that people can do that and uh, break the laws of a country and get away with it, you know, is is quite... uh, yeah, I mean, especially with um, uh, there were like you know military units and stuff as well on Australian soldiers, I think, in that area. Um, so it seems like Australia just think they can do anything they want um, with the Solomon Islands or Papua New Guinea or basically any Pacific Island nation that um, you know isn't controlled by a European country or America at the moment. They seem to just you know plant their soldiers and uh, put their people there. Um, like with Nauru, um, that, that's one of the big things. Like Nauru basically went bankrupt from, um, I guess, an Australian grifter. Uh, so they mined out all their, um, was it phosphate in Nauru? Yeah, phosphate. Yeah, and they had a huge tower down in Melbourne where I live. Now it's sold. <laughs> they invested in plays. Um, and now Australia, after basically you know profiting so much from it, now they're putting you know, all the refugees down in Nauru. Um, and it's basically the entire economy now. It's it's very sad. Yeah. yeah, and you know, whilst we can, you know, point fingers at the uh, major powers, uh, you know, this also, you know, it's also incumbent on us, those mm. of us in the Pacific Islands, to uh, protect our own sovereignty as well, and and to make decisions that do not undermine it. So. It's also up to us to say no. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, is, and in fact, uh, a lot of people, Papua New Guinea, opposed the Manus Detention Center, but it was a government-to-government arrangement. So what, what is the politics, domestic politics like? Is it like there are two big parties like in Australia or? So um, Papua New Guinea's political culture hasn't really developed yet uh, to the level that you have in the West. <laughs> Uh, it's very uh, tribalistic or neo-tribalistic and uh, parochial and more focused on uh, local issues. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so there's a mismatch between uh, regional, local interests and 
the broader national agenda. And, and that's also, that tug of war is part of the problem with development because uh, you know, in politics, you need numbers to become prime minister. And, and in order to master the numbers, you have to uh, save those local parochial interests. And sometimes that, not sometimes, but most times that comes at the expense of the broader national interest. Right. So there's a lot of um, lo local politics and little local allegiances still. Um, yeah, that, that, that's, that's what defines PNG politics mainly. Is that to do with all the um, many uh, different ethnic groups and or? Yeah, so we, we have, we have uh, you know, over 800 different languages in a population that's about 10 million people. It's one of the most linguistically diverse places on the earth. And and so those languages, language groups, if you like, uh, in some sense, different tribal nations with different dreams and aspirations. So you have 700 nations and you're all trying to cram them under one umbrella. And yeah. That's, that's, that's a challenge uh, between uh, what the central government wants and what local interests are. Yeah, that's that sounds insane. Very difficult, um, especially um, I, 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 coming from you know in China they have Mandarin, which is basically sort of the lingua franca, like a unifying language um, to work under. If they didn't have that, um, you know, it would be a mess as well. Um, so I'm guessing is does English play that same role in Papua New Guinea, like as the lingua franca or administrative language? Yeah. So, so. Papua New Guineans and uh, Solomon Islanders, Vanuatu, invented their own uh, pidgin language. So in PNG, it's called Tokpisin. And it's a mix of traditional words, English, some German words. And that's the language of currency in the country, uh, Tokpisin. But the, okay. the country has three official languages. Uh, uh, Hirimoto, which is the language of the indigenous people of Port Mosby. And that was the language that the uh, Australian colonial administration used to uh, communicate in the southern part of the country. So Hirimoto. And we also have English, obviously, and, and talk with him. But the more commonly spoken language is talk with him. It's, it's similar to Bislama in uh, Vanuatu and uh, and the pigeon in the Solomon Islands. Okay, um, that, that's a lot of length. That must be very. Oh, by the way, the, the, the Torres Strait Islanders also have the island pigeon, which is similar to Tokpisin as well. Wow, yeah, it must be uh, very hard to organize. So that was that. Would that mean because you know the Port Moresby they have? Um, it sounds like they would they would put Moresby in. The people in that uh, area would they have a lot of more influence just because of their geographic region? Yeah, so I, I don't think this is something that's unique to Papua New Guinea. Uh, it's you know, it's usually the elite that you know drive policy uh, that decide on resources. Mm -hmm. um, but what's you know, 
what ex- exacerbates the situation in Papua New Guinea is the geography. So you have a lot of isolated communities, uh, whether by ocean or by the mountain terrain or by swamplands. Uh, very difficult uh, geography the country has. So uh, communities that are not at the center of power have very little influence in terms of uh, decision making on policy and resource allocation. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I realized, um, so there, there was a, I think there was a Chinese prime minister um, of Papua New Guinea, Chinese descent, right? And um, he's, he's been playing quite a big role, I think, in the um, talking of China recently. It, uh, can you sort of go in a bit about, about that or? So there's, there's been a long history uh, between Papua New Guinea and China. Um, obviously, um, before the Europeans came, there were Malay traders and perhaps some Chinese coming looking for beach demai in this part of the world and trading for uh, bird of paradise blooms. <laughs> um, that's probably how sweet potato came up this way to this part of the world <laughs> uh, after the Spanish or Portuguese took it from South America to uh, their colonies in the uh, in Asia, um, and uh, and obviously when when the different powers European powers started coming in, they brought Chinese workers, and one of the descendants of those Chinese workers was the second prime minister of uh, Papua New Guinea, Sir Julius Chen, and uh, Sir Julius is still in parliament as the uh, governor of uh, one of the provinces, uh, New Island provinces, and uh, and continues to have an influence on national politics here. But in terms of Tianji's uh, engagement with, with China, I think it was really uh, brought to the forefront under the previous uh, government and the prime minister. O'Neill. Um, prior to that, obviously, the Prime Minister Stomare had brought in the Chinese to invest in the big uh, nickel cobalt mine, but O'Neill really uh, took the relationship to a next level in terms of uh, Chinese uh, uh, involvement in uh, infrastructure development in the country. Okay, and, of course, and of course, uh, what everyone likes to uh, go on about the so-called Chinese debt trap. Yeah. Yeah, because I so yeah, I, I shouldn't have believed what I said on saw on Twitter. I just some guy was saying, "Oh, I thought Julius Chan was using his CCP connections or something." So I assumed that was true. But obviously, you can't trust uh, random uh, people on Twitter, especially um, Australians who are very anti-China. But fair enough. So it was actually um, Mr. O'Neill who. Um, has been doing a lot of this Chinese allies and yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think the the relationship went uh, up a notch under under the O'Neill regime uh, in terms of uh, Chinese financing of uh, projects, but also Chinese, China's involvement in construction and, and other investments as well. Yeah, so what's your view on uh, the debt trap since we put it up? Well, in terms of uh, PNG's debt profile, uh, China's 
China's uh, lending to China isn't, you know, up there amongst the other other lenders. So uh, it's it's not a debt trap, um, you know. That has been acknowledged by you know others. You know, you, you saw a recent article where instead of using the term uh, debt trap, the Diplomat magazine used debt squeeze. <laughs> Uh, and that was in reference to uh, loan repayments to China. Uh, but in any case, Papua New Guinea was already experiencing a debt squeeze uh, because the uh, economic fundamentals of the country was facing, uh, being able to raise revenue and to fund the budget. Uh, this is something that began when there was a collapse in uh, investment in the resource sector around 2013-14. Uh, a lot of mineral exploration companies shut down. Uh, the only thing that was really going was the uh, construction of the uh, PNG LNG project. And until that was concluded in 2014, there wasn't really anything else happening. So the economy was already uh, in in perhaps recession but definitely in a downturn and and but you know the red peril is always what people want to uh, talk about uh, but i think uh mm. uh actually the government of papua new guinea owes more to local uh banks and financial institutions than it does to overseas uh, lenders <clears throat> I see. So it's not really at risk of a, a so-called debt trap in this case. Well, I, I, I say it's not at the risk yeah. of, of a debt trap. Yeah. And it's a, is a sign on to the one belt, one road? Or? Yeah, yeah. So it was Prime Minister O'Neill who went over to Beijing and signed off on that. So Papua New Guinea signed off onto the one belt, one road initiative. And, uh, and you know, it's it's hardly you know surprising that we are seeing such you know major announcements from from the Chinese side, uh, such as for instance those uh, proposed investments in Daru. Uh, you know, one could say they're part of the One Belt One Road initiative. Okay, and uh, right. are you seeing a lot of Xiaomi and Huawei phones now in the market? And <laughs> well. This, you know, he, Huawei has a presence here. As, as we talked earlier, uh, they've, they are building PNG's uh, national broadband network. Um, they have a presence. They have uh, uh, branded shops here that sell their phones. Uh, yep. Uh, the other brands that you, you mentioned, Xiaomi, it's here. Um, and, and, you know, people do buy them. I, I don't, I haven't seen Papuanians, uh, you know, talking about what Trump was talking about in terms of security. People just go and buy a phone that they like. Yeah. Oh, cool. so you, you, know, and you probably get a lot of um, crazy Trump news as well. You know, US news seeps through because that's what Australians yeah. get. Like, we talk about American politics more than our own politics these days. Yeah, yeah so, you know, Papua New Guineans tend to be very religious as well, although they do not practice it. What uh, religion? But, uh, uh, Christianity. Okay. So you can, Im you can imagine the uh, you fundamentalist US uh, 
Christians having an influence and, and Trump, you know, riding on that. So Trump's pretty popular here. Uh, oh, really? Because of, yeah, because of those connections. So, Do you have any QAnon? Uh, not that I know of. <laughs> <laughs> But, but, you know, there's, there's this big WhatsApp, uh, you know, anti-COVID vaccine, you know. Oh, really? World and who, which vaccines kind of. is PNG using? Um. Uh, the, the, the PNG government uh, hasn't decided on, uh, but, you know, the PNG government won't be deciding on the vaccine. It's whoever's going to shove it down their throat will have decided on what vaccine we're going to get. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. really unfair because especially China and, you know, the, 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 I mean, Australia, which is the extent of the US, are basically using PNG as like a chip on like a chessboard, like using a chess piece. And you guys, you know, don't really have, it seems like don't really have much say in a lot of these matters. Um, and yeah, I, yeah. That's quite that's quite correct in terms of you know as as we talked about with the vaccine. So when you, when you're talking about projects, when uh, the overseas party is uh, putting their money to it, you don't you just say thank you, clap your hands, and uh, you know watch as the building is being built. Um, but uh, you know as we have seen with how the uh, governor for Western provinces taken a stand on in, in defending the Chinese investment over the Australian concerns. Um, you know, if people do take a stand, they, they, they can take a stand and uh, it does matter. I mean, it makes sense. Like um, a lot of the Australians that talk about this, they're not even uh, Papua New Guineans or people from Papua New Guinea or whatever. Remember you did that, the Laui research think tank they had like six white dudes and like a i think it was a sub asian guy Regan? Uh, yeah. yeah that yes. was uh yeah sherelle jackson shared that that image of the board there <laughs> as martin you said they should all uh they need a bula shirt <laughs> which is uh the traditional yeah. shirt of Papua new guinea right yeah, not not that uh, not that a bula shirt makes you a Pacific Island expert, but uh, that was just a joke. <laughs> um, but but you would one would think you know there are all these uh, islander intellectuals, academics, uh, researchers, you know, from that pool, you know, how come none of them is there to to uh, being a think tank that's focused on on the Pacific, um, yeah, or well, at least they could and, pay and, pay one of them to be pro Australian or something, you know. That at least would yeah, make yeah. it more legit. Like you know, they, I like how to pay Chinese people to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that that's not just a criticism from Papua New Guinea; it's been uh, widespread criticism across the region. Uh, but that's, I think. Uh, highlights the kind of uh, relationship uh, Australia has with the region and, and with Papua New Guinea. And, and to contrast the Australian relationship with uh, uh, Papua New Guinea, you know, the Chinese shopkeepers and, uh, you know, other business people that come to Papua New Guinea, they, they live with the communities, you know. <laughs> This is very different from the expats who 
uh, hide away in their compounds with high fences and with security guards and dogs, you know. Hiding. Oh, really? So the Chinese community, <clears throat> they don't, they don't, do they have like Chinese suburbs, like enclaves or like lots of Chinese shops in one area, like that kind of thing happening? Or? Um, well, they, they're quite uh, dispersed within the communities. So it's, it's difficult to really say, oh, you know, there's yeah. a Chinese enclave here or there. I guess it's uh, kind of like know, what I see in Kenya as well, where a lot of Chinese people basically integrated into the Kenyan community. While well, you see the white missionaries, or not missionaries, or the white, you know, sort of businessmen, they're like in their little mansions on the seaside. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty much the PNG story as well. Um, oh. So if you, you even have uh, Chinese business people out in very remote uh, areas of Papua New Guinea. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, we say, how, how is it that the Chinamen's able to take a bag of rice out somewhere there and uh, the PNG government can't take uh, textbooks and medicines? <laughs> to the is is Chinamen the, the usual term they use uh, in Papua New Guinea? Because uh, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I know some places in South Africa, they still say chink for Chinese people. And I'm just like, oh, God. But it's okay. It's cool. I understand. It's all good. It's all good because that's like the, the usual term. It's not like, you know, it's a, you know, the, but yeah, I mean, they, you know, a lot of these businessmen, I can relate to that because they would have come from maybe like Guizhou and Yunnan or even Guangdong where they probably grew up living in the mountains as well. So they might be used to, you know, living uh, in remote areas and, you know, carrying huge loads. Um, well, uh, well, in Australia, you know, we do have people like that, but I guess, I guess it's not as much, especially when you're an expat. There's always this sense of superiority because like, when I was in China, like, it was the same. Most Australian expats only hung out with Australian expats. They never learn a local language or dialect. Um, they all live in high-rise mansions. There's a few that don't, and it's very rare, but there's a few that don't, but it, it, it's, very, uh, it's very annoying. And they also seem to really try to impress and force their views on the locals or on the national discourse or international discourse yeah I, it, that that contrast is uh it, it uh it's reflected here as well yeah it, it's it's just so, it's, so but yeah. one of the interesting things that because i prior to coming back to the city i was out in in the rural areas for for a couple of months and uh, i noticed how are the kind of uh relationships the, the Chinese business people are able to build with the communities and and particularly the local leadership, which I found to be quite interesting in terms of uh, being able to uh, mobilize the local leadership in such a way to enable the uh, business to uh, to function within these areas, which you know, generally people look at as risky. So I found that quite interesting and, you know, maybe the Chinese could teach uh, us as well about how we can work with uh, our local leaders to try to uh, deliver some of our developmental aspirations. And uh, that I thought was quite interesting, you know, the Chinese were able to work very well with uh, local leadership yeah, uh, well, one so thing. Yeah. Work. <laughs> I mean, one thing I'm very definitely proud of Chinese people is they're very, very precise and strong bureaucracy. 
very, very well uh, designed. Dozens of years of history. I think it's the longest continuing civil service system. But I, I hope China can have more, um, you know, uh, you know, opportunities to work with Papua New Guinea and um, help develop the public service as well, and you know, increase living standards for everyone um, in general. Because I, I know that, that there was someone talking about it. Um, I was in Beijing, and they said it was going to be flights directly from Beijing to Port Moresby. Uh, yeah, that that's already not not Beijing. I think to Shanghai, um, but we do have direct flights to to China. Wow, that's actually quite really wow. Okay. Um, well, we, we've talked for quite a while. Is there anything else you want to ask, Regan? Uh, no, this is pretty good. This is yeah. very informative. Like, honestly, I've learned so much in the yeah. last hour. Um, and we should definitely have you on again. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, ha- I'm happy to come on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and uh, well, yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Martin. And yeah, uh, thanks, mate. Yeah, this is another episode of IG Billabong, and yeah.